And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out about him, uh, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept that they will be a resurrection both in just, both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, I found, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, Go away from uh, the present when I get an opportunity I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. 
So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Well, thank you, Tim and Linda. Um, If you could keep that scripture passage open, we're going to be uh, referring to it, and you can find some space for notes on page four of the bulletin as well. But before we uh, consider what God says to us here, let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you uh, that you are the all-powerful God that we already have sung of, have prayed to, have worshipped. And Lord, we pray that even as we hear your word, that you would uh, remind us who it is that is speaking here. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, listen with eagerness, and Lord, help us to understand and uh, and trust you in what you say to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, history has seen many plagues and pandemics. Before COVID, there was the Spanish flu, for example. Now, one of the deadliest plagues um, known uh, was back in the year 165 AD. That was the Antonin Plague. Um, It was believed to have killed between a quarter and a third of the entire Roman Empire at the time. That's almost 60 million people. Now, there was the Cyprian Plague around the year 250. Uh, That killed around 5,000 people per day. Um, Or was the Plague of Justin around 200 years later? That took out 10,000 a day. Uh, Not to mention, of course, the Black Death. The toll of that uh, plague was between 75 and 20 million people. Uh, Now, I admit this is a pretty grim way to start out a sermon, uh, to describe all of these historic plagues. Uh, Maybe you love it, maybe you don't. That tells you probably more about you than anything else. But how does it fit with the theme of our sermon? Well, uh, we're challenged in our text uh, with the suggestion that uh, Christianity itself may be one of the biggest plagues in human history. And here is the question, is belief in Jesus Christ a dangerous social contagion? That seems to be what, uh, what we read of in this text. Paul is a plague. Now in 2020, around 2.4 billion people in the world professed faith in Jesus Christ in some sense. And that would make it far greater than any plague known in human history. Uh, In the past, many people may have considered that number of Christians to be a good thing, Uh, but the times seems to have changed. The tide seems to have turned. Uh, Religion in general, and Christianity in particular, is no longer thought to be the solution to the world's problems. Uh, No, in fact, many believe it to be the cause of some of those problems. Uh, What we believe is repressive. It holds people down. It hinders true progress. It stifles free expression. If only we could vaccinate people against Christianity in the way that we can vaccinate people against COVID. And maybe you've never encountered those sentiments expressed quite so strongly. And yet you do have friends and family and colleagues and neighbors who don't necessarily appreciate the fact that you're a Christian. You appreciate it, but but they do not. But following Christ... Uh, we learn in the scriptures is never going to make us popular. Uh, and we learn in the book of Acts that this idea, of course, is, is nothing new. Uh, throughout history, Christians have found themselves having to take a more defensive posture. 
Uh, and we see this especially in the final chapters of Acts. Uh, these chapters, as we work through them, you'll see contain trial after trial after trial. Uh, as Paul responds to various accusations, it's almost like a legal drama. Uh, last week we saw Paul before the Jewish courts giving a defense, and this week we see him now standing trial before the Roman governor. Uh, Paul, in this, is following in the footsteps of Christ. In fact, he's doing this quite literally. Jesus himself stood before the Sanhedrin, and then he was sent to Pontius Pilate. And in the same way, Paul now is on trial for his faith. And in, in some ways, we will find ourselves on trial as we follow Jesus. We may not literally be put on trial for our faith, but we are called to give a defense. We're meant to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us, to be able to explain why Christianity isn't a plague that brings death, but rather is the only path to true life. Uh, and this really is the big point. This is the take-home truth today, that as we defend the faith, as we seek to make uh, such a claim, uh, one of the biggest battles we will face is the battle to maintain our own integrity. Uh, this is, if you will, one of the defensive driving tips uh, that we find here in Acts. To defend the faith, we need to maintain our own integrity. We need to strive to walk with uprightness. And this is what we see with Paul. Uh, so let's look at what happens as Paul faces this accusation that Christianity is a plague. And to help us do this, we're going to look at the passage in three parts. Uh, firstly, we're going to look at the plausible political charge in verses 1 through 8. Uh, the plausible political charge. Uh, and then we're going to consider uh, Paul's poised and principled defense. His poised and principled defense. We see that in verses 9 through 21. And then finally... In verses 23 through 27, we're going to look at the powerful, promising opportunity. Uh, the plausible political charge, uh, the poised and principled defense, and then finally, the powerful and promising opportunity. Uh, together, we'll, uh, as we look at these things, we'll see why it is that, that Christians are not a plague. Uh, we'll see uh, Paul's defense. So firstly, though, let's look at this charge. Let's look at the plausible political charge. Uh, when we look at uh, verses 1 through 8, this is what we see. We see this allegation that Christianity is a political threat, that it is a threat to law and order, that it, it disturbs the peace, that Christianity will bring with it social instability. Uh, now, this adds to what we've already seen in previous chapters. Uh, if you've not been here with us, then uh, what we found in chapter 19 is that uh, there was already an economic charge against the faith. In Ephesus, the challenge was that Christianity was bad for business. And then in Jerusalem, we also saw a religious charge. Paul was accused of being against everything that God is for. He's against God's people. He's against God's precepts. He's against God's holy place, the temple. And that is what led to Paul's arrest. Um, the Jews from Asia accused Paul of desecrating the temple. And Paul was tried for that religious crime before the Jewish courts. Uh, but of course, they couldn't make the charge stick. And so what did they resort to? Well, they attempted a political assassination. And yet Paul was spared from that. Uh, and he was sent from the tribune in Jerusalem all the way up to the Roman governor in Caesarea. Uh, under Roman guard, now he's set to stand trial before the Roman governor. Uh, and this is where we are now. Look down at, at chapter 24, verse 1. Now, after five days, the high priest... Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And now the Jewish leaders have lawyered up at this point. Uh, 
Uh, Tertullus, this man, appears to have essentially been their attorney. And I don't know, maybe he made a name for himself winning religious cases like this before, before the uh, Roman courts. Uh, he certainly seems to be very shrewd in his approach. Uh, he knows that the Roman governor Felix doesn't really care about Jewish law. Uh, no, the priority for every Roman official was the same, to maintain peace, to uphold the long-established Pax Romana. And so what charge does Tertullus bring? Well, uh, I want you to see it's a political charge. He argues that Paul is a public nuisance, that he's a threat to law and order. Uh, look down at verse 5. Uh, we have found this man to be a plague. Uh, now, what a powerful statement in modern terms. Basically, it's saying this. This man, uh, this man uh, by being a Christian, is something like, like COVID. Uh, Paul and other Christians uh, should come with a public health warning. Maybe, as Christians, we need some sort of hazard tattoo uh, cast across our foreheads. Uh, and Tertullus goes on, how is Paul a plague? Well, he's stirring up riots amongst the Jews. That's what he's doing. And in these riots, Paul has a very particular role. Uh, this articulate lawyer now refers to Paul as a ringleader. It's a, a very loaded term. Uh, basically, Christianity is a seditious movement. And Paul, Paul is one of the primary instigators of this movement. Uh, and when you think about it, it is a really good argument. It appeals to Felix's love for peace. If you love peace, he's saying, well, you need to do away with Paul. Uh, you need to get rid of this, this troublemaker. Uh, but how could he possibly suggest this about Paul? I mean, read through Acts and you'll see Paul just simply travels around the region teaching people all about Jesus. Uh, and yet, this isn't just a political charge, is it? Uh, it's also a plausible political charge. Uh, this actually has some legs to it. I mean, think about this for a moment. Yes, Paul is simply traveling around, preaching the gospel about Jesus, good news of peace. But isn't it also true that wherever Paul goes, trouble seems to ensue? Whenever he preaches, riots break out in the synagogues, and, and then they spill out of the synagogues into the marketplaces, and, and now here in the Jerusalem temple. And think about who Paul follows, who it is Paul proclaims. He's championing Jesus Christ. Isn't this a man who was crucified for the very same crime, the crime of sedition? Uh, there's an element of legal genius, if you will, in, in this argument. Uh, Paul seems to be trapped. He's, he's been causing trouble, or, or so it seems. Although, let's be honest, they have to bend the truth a little bit, don't they? In, in verse 6, they suggest that it was the Jews that arrested Paul. Uh, if you know the story, you'll know actually it was the Roman Tribune, the Roman tribune who actually arrested Paul uh, to... to uh, save him from the Jewish mob who were trying to kill him. But if Paul hadn't been there, if he hadn't been there, well, there would have been no problem at all. In Ephesus, in Jerusalem, wherever you see trouble, you can be sure Paul is right there in the middle of it. And so they bring this plausible political charge against Paul. And what I'd suggest is this. We encounter a similar plausible political charge against Christians today. Isn't Christianity a threat to peace? Uh, well, many, I believe, think it is. Is Christianity a kind of political plague? Plague? Um, do Christians pose a threat to democracy, to political stability within the nation? Uh, the truth is, some professing Christians really are a threat, uh, are they not? Uh, some have pointed to the growing wave of Christian nationalism. Others have argued against uh, uh, an ever-increasing rise of so-called violent Christian extremism. 
Uh, there is no reason to doubt that in some sense those threats exist. And people do all kinds of crazy, horrifying, disruptive things, and they do them in the name of Jesus. Uh, and yet the problem is these things cast all Christians in a terrible light. Uh, they lead us all to be uh, tarred with the same brush, don't they? Uh, these things make the political charge against all Christians seem very plausible. Uh, and unfortunately, there, there is. Uh, un uh, unfortunately, this close, associate, uh, close association between Christianity and, and a particular political party or perhaps some political causes. And now I say it is unfortunate there is such an association. And when I say that, I, I truly mean it. In fact, I encountered a humorous example of this uh, during my first evening in the United States. Uh, it was uh, during 2006, which was uh, right in the middle of the George W. Bush years. Now, on my first night in the country, I did what any self-respecting Englishman would do. Uh, I found the nearest pub. Uh, and as I sat in the bar, confused by the beer selection before me, um, I got talking to a very interesting guy. And uh, he asked me who I was or where I was from, what brought me to the States. And I said, look, I, I, I came to the States to work for this church just down the road. And now when I said that, his expression suddenly changed and steam started coming out of his ears. How on earth can you support the war, he said, meaning the war in Iraq. Bush is a liar. There are no weapons of mass destruction. This is all about who controls the oil. And now you see, all I told him was that I worked for a church, but hearing that I was a Christian somehow caused him to make a leap. Now, for some reason, he jumped straight to politics, and maybe, maybe you know why. At the time, I didn't. And my faith somehow suggested a certain stance on foreign policy. I'm not sure why, uh, but I'm sure you've had very similar conversations. And my point is simply this. For him, love for Jesus Christ equated for uh, Lord, uh, love for George W. Bush for some reason. And here's the point. In, heated, uh, in a heated political climate, it's so easy to associate and confuse politics and faith. In fact, some people even view Christians as some sort of insidious political operatives. And to be honest, a lot of Christians walk right into this, don't they? Uh, for some professing believers, these charges stick because they do appear to put their politics ahead of their faith in Jesus. Uh, but even if we avoid that, we will still face this same charge. Christianity, we're told, is first and foremost political. It's, it's about control. It's about power. And therefore, Christians are like a plague. Society would surely be better off without them. It would be safer. It would be more stable if all the Christians would, would just go away. In other words, in our own culture, ask the average person on the street and you'll find at least a few, at least a handful, who agree with this argument from Tertullus. Uh, they'll present a plausible political charge against Christianity, uh, against the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, they believe that there is something about our faith that is inherently dangerous, inherently wrong. Uh, and the question, I suppose, is how should we respond to that? Uh, how do we respond to this, this plausible political charge? Uh, how do we handle all of this bad press about the Christian faith? Whether it's the fact that we pose an economic threat or a spiritual threat or a political threat, how do we defend against these accusations that we are a plague, a blight that needs eliminating for the good of society? Well, that brings us to verses 10 through 21 and to our second point. Because having looked at this, this plausible political charge, now let's look at the poised and principled defense. That is what Paul lays out in these verses. I mean, firstly, notice how Paul is poised. 
By which I mean Paul just doesn't seem to be phased by this. He isn't shaken. He isn't on the back foot. He isn't knocking at the knees. Instead, we sense his confidence. At Paul is confidence. He's prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in him. In verse 10, he says, I will make my cheerful defense. That word cheerful suggests that Paul is in good spirits. It suggests that he's, he's ready. He's, he's eager. He's eager to speak. And it makes me want to ask this question. How can we face opposition which, with such confidence, with such poise today? I mean, Paul looks like uh, one of those Olympic swimmers high up on the diving board, ready to take a dive and do five turns and three twists. Uh, I, on the other hand, feel like that kid who, who just about made it up the steps. And they glance over the edge of the board and they realize it's so high up that they kind of back away from the edge and, uh, and then weave their way back down. Uh, don't you long for this kind of confidence uh, within yourself? Uh, as you share your faith with family, with friends, with neighbors, uh, don't you wish you could stand tall like this? Don't you wish that you weren't always on the back foot? Uh, don't you wish that, that you weren't plagued by your own insecurities? Uh, that you could give a cheerful defense? Uh, that you could clearly give a reason for the hope that is in you? Uh, well, one of, things, one of the things that, that helps is to realize Paul's a defense isn't just poised. No, Paul's defense here is, is principled. It's principled. What do I mean by that? Well, well, I mean that Paul isn't playing a political game. He refuses to play a political game. He doesn't try to win an argument. He doesn't even just to try his best to get out of prison. And no, Paul acts with integrity. He acts with integrity. As one commentator puts it, his central appeal here isn't just to the facts of the case, but to ethos. It is his ethics. It is his character. Essentially, Paul is a man of clear convictions, a man of clear convictions. And those clear convictions uh, cause Paul to pursue a clear conscience, uh, uh, clear convictions leading to a clear conscience both before God and before other people. And this comes out in verse 14. In some sense, I think verses 14 through 16 are, are really the key verses in this text. A look at verse 14. Paul makes his confession here. And what does he confess? Well, in the face of this political charge, uh, what he admits to is this. Uh, but this I confess, he says, that according to the way, that is the way of Christ, which they call a sect, uh, I worship the God of our fathers. And what does this worship entail? Well, it entails believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And secondly, it entails having a hope, a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. Now, Paul has clear convictions about two things, doesn't he? Uh, firstly, he builds his life on the solid foundation of God's word. He believes everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And in light of this, and in light of the resurrection of Christ, Paul also lives in light of eternity, in light of the fact that God will bring a, a, a judgment when Jesus returns. On that final day, all will be raised, the just and the unjust. God will open the books. And just as Paul is now standing on trial before the Roman governor, so everyone will stand on trial before the throne room of God. God will open the books. Everyone will give an account. And even as he stands before the judgment seat of Rome, he lifts his gaze to a higher throne, to the judgment seat of Christ, and he allows that to impact what he does here. It has a sobering effect on Paul, doesn't it? In fact, these clear convictions lead to what he says in verse 16. And so he says, because of this, because I believe in the word of God and the judgment to come, what does he do? Well, he says, I take pains 
to have a clear conscience both before God and man. What I care about isn't just your law, the law of Rome. What I care about is the law of God. And what I care about first and foremost isn't what you think of me or how this is going to go. What I care about is what God thinks of me and what will happen on that final judgment. And that enables Paul to walk with integrity. And listen, I think the same is true, isn't it? These same clear convictions will lead us to pursue a clean conscience too. I mean, just as this is the foundation of Paul's defense, so it also needs to be our defense. This, in some sense, needs to be our confidence. Now, you see, the problem is we often get so caught up in defending ourselves, in, in defending perhaps even the faith, that we lose sight of God himself. Instead of considering him, we start to worry more about what the unbelieving world thinks of me. In fact, I was listening to a podcast just the other day that I think made this point very, very well. Uh, the the uh, speaker on the podcast was thinking about the subject of love, the subject of love. Uh, Christians are meant to be loving. Uh, everyone knows that. And so we do our best, don't we, to appeal loving to other people. Uh, and hopefully, as we do, we are performing genuine acts of love as well. And yet here is the problem. We take our cues so often from the world, don't we? Uh, when it comes to the very definition of love, we actually end up appropriating the world's answer. And here is what the guy on the podcast said. I think he put it so well. He said this, I think in order to understand Christian love, we need to see it as sacrificial love for others that is both pleasing and acceptable to God before it is acceptable to the world. And often we can get this the wrong way around. As if we need to be loving in the eyes of the world and God will be happy with that. No, not necessarily. In actual fact, we're given quite clear instructions to love well, uh, and it is to love well in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to God first, because it means to really love someone uh, by pursuing what is best for them. Uh, what he's basically saying is this, we need to put pleasing God first before pleasing other people. Uh, but at the same time, we do have to care what other people think of us. Uh, Paul's clear convictions lead him to pursue a clean conscience before God and before man. And what that means is this. At times we have to admit that our actions or attitudes are wrong. There are times when Christians, uh, when we as Christians need to apologize to a watching world for the fact we haven't maintained our convictions, uh, that we've defied our own consciences and done what we know is wrong. There are times when uh, our very best offense is offense. Not that we go on offense against the world, but rather we go on the offense against ourselves and our own sins. Uh, we need to challenge ourselves about the areas that we have been compromising, compromising our convictions, uh, allowing our conscience to be defiled, not maintaining our integrity in the way that we relate to the world. Uh, we need to be like the Apostle Paul here, who in fact really is just like the Lord Jesus. But we need to avoid playing politics. We need to avoid being driven only by perception. Instead, we need to cultivate clear convictions, clear convictions about God's word, uh, clear convictions about the judgment that is to come. And then we need to live in light of those things, in light of the fact that they are true, striving to maintain a clean conscience, uh, making it our priority to do what is right, to do what is right before God and, and only then before a watching world. Uh, Paul knew the great commandments, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, uh, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Uh, this really is our life's work, isn't it? This is what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and we have to say, don't we, it's a lot to be getting on with. Isn't that really enough to do, to love God with your whole heart, to love your neighbor as yourself? If you are doing that, do you have time to become some sort of political operative? And we should defend the gospel against those plausible uh, political charges in the same way, uh, with the same poised and principled defense, uh, with the pursuit of true integrity, love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, And as we do, I think that will lead to the third thing we see. So let's look at verses 22 through 27 before we close. Uh, These verses describe a powerful, promising opportunity. A powerful, promising opportunity. You you, You see this charge against Paul, you see his defense, and then you actually see how by making this defense, God uses it to open doors. In light of Paul's defense... Things don't work out quite as we hope. We have to say that to begin with, don't we? Uh, Paul is not released from prison at all. Uh, the verdict against Paul is deferred until a more convenient moment when the, uh, the tribune can come up and, and describe what happened. In fact, by the end of the passage, Paul is left there languishing in prison. Uh, but at the same time, uh, notice the open door. In fact, this closed door of the prison leads to an open door for the gospel. I looked in at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, his defense hasn't gotten him released, but it is very clear that Paul's defense did make some sort of impact. God had a plan, you see. Remember, the goal is not Paul's comfort. It is the advance of the gospel. And how did this, uh, this serve to advance the gospel? Well, uh, here he has repeated opportunities to share Christ with, with Felix and, and Drusilla and anyone else who just happened to be listening. Uh, and when you realize this, you actually discover this is a fulfillment of, of, of what God had said to Paul at the very start. Uh, what had God said? What had Jesus said to Paul when he was converted, when he was called on the road to Damascus? Well, what he said was this. He said, you will bear witness before Gentiles and before their kings and before their rulers. And here is Paul now. Uh, The prison door remains locked, uh, locked, but God is opening a door for the gospel. Uh, And listen, this is what you will find. Often this is the outcome of of maintaining your integrity under pressure. Uh, This is the outcome when you follow Christ with clear convictions and a clean conscience. Uh, You often find the results are not really immediate. Uh, and yet there is a long-term impact for the glory of Christ. In fact, it's a small example, but I think of a time in high school not long after I'd first become a Christian. Uh, now, there were not many Christians in, uh, in my school. In fact, I think my best count was there may have been four. And so that made Christians a little bit of a target. It, it was never so bad, but, but people certainly did bully us for following the Lord Jesus. Uh, now, I have to say, my approach was really just to put my head down and, and not respond I was hardly a a shiny example of uh, defending the faith, of of standing strong for the cause of the gospel. Uh, By the grace of God, I just kept plodding along, trying my best to follow Jesus. Uh, I tried not to let it get to me, and by the grace of God, it it didn't get to me. Uh, And uh, uh, what I was amazed about was this. Many years later, I I met uh, a guy who was uh, a part of my class in high school. Now, he was one of the rugby team. And uh, the rugby team, I have to say, were the primary bullies, at least they were in our school. Uh, And you know what? This guy had actually come to faith 
in Jesus Christ. Uh, and do you know what he said? One of the things that struck him was the way that my friends and I responded. Uh, the fact that uh, we held our ground uh, even though uh, we were being picked on for following Jesus. Uh, now, what an amazing thing. Uh, what an amazing thing that God would use such small things to accomplish his purposes. Uh, and listen, this is part of the encouragement here, isn't it? That even though people say all kinds of things about Christians, you have an opportunity to prove them wrong, but to do so in this sense. Uh, not by some great apologetics lecture or some cunning argument or some, some uh, impenetrable defense. Uh, no, you do this by the grace of God, by maintaining clear convictions uh, and living as much as you can by the grace of God with a clean conscience before them. Uh, and in this way, we find so often a door is opened to speak of Jesus Christ. Uh, a door is opened for us to tell them of his love for them. Uh, to explain how even though God made us and loves us, we rebel against him. Uh, even though we, we, are, we are rebels against him and deserve his wrath, he and his love came to rescue us. Uh, Jesus died in our place. He rose to life to give us a certain hope. And Jesus can bring each of us from death to life. He can forgive our sins. He can change our hearts. And he can forgive them and change them also. Uh, how therefore Christianity is not a threat to law and order at all, uh, but it actually is the only way that each of us can experience true peace, peace with God and, and then peace with one another. Uh, you see, the real battle takes place not not. Uh, in law courts or in trumped-up charges against political threats, uh, as plausible as those threats may seem. Uh, no, the real battleground is in personal relationships, in, in, in on-the-ground conversations about the Lord Jesus. And so when faced with the plausible political charge that Christians are a plague, how do we respond? Well, let's strive to present the same poised and principled defense as Paul. Let's fight by the grace of God amidst all of those things to maintain before God our own integrity. And let's pray that as we do, as weakly and as failingly as we do, that God will open up powerful and promising opportunities to bear witness to our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you. Uh, so much for uh, for these words for these uh, uh, this account thank you uh, for your grace in enabling paul uh, to follow the lord jesus christ and, and we pray for that same grace uh, that you'd give that grace to us uh, lord we acknowledge before you our need uh, we feel it every day to, to make a defense uh, of uh, of our faith in jesus and so we pray that you'd equip us help us to maintain our own integrity will develop within us clear conscience clear convictions clear convictions about your word about the judgment to come. And therefore, Lord, help us be those who, by your grace, live as much as it is possible uh, to live a life with a clean conscience before you and before men. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.